So today's message is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and the Apostle Paul is shifting gears. You may not be able to see or read that clearly on the big screen, but this graphic is from BibleProject.com. I've talked about them before. They have great overview charts of Bible books if you're studying, and also videos that just give you a good uh, overview of what's happening in the book. So we're in chapter 11. The first four chapters of this book dealt with divisions within the church, and Paul was addressing specific questions and issues that came up. The next three chapters were about sex, marriage, and a Christian's motivation for purity. The last three chapters that we covered have been talking about Christian liberty, specifically as it related to food and drink and other areas within the Christian's life. Paul was encouraging believers, and that's us as well, that even if it means giving up your own personal freedoms, love your brothers and sisters well. Love the people around you well. Love unbelievers well. If you're trying to reach them for the gospel, don't take advantage of some of those liberties you have. And now in chapters 11 to 14, Paul is addressing issues specifically related to the gathering of the church. And that's what we're doing this morning. How we worship, how we function together. And then the final chapters, Paul will talk about the resurrection. The fact that we, just like Christ was raised from the dead, we are raised in new life to eternal life. We have a relationship with God right now that will last forever and nothing can come between you and God's love. I hope you know that this morning. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're listening to this message, know that God has adopted you as a son or a daughter. And if you're in his family, he says, I will in no wise cast you out. No one can take my children from my hand. So you have that pledge from God, and Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit seals our salvation. In the first half of chapter 11, Paul is dealing with some cultural problems within the worship service. And remember, as we look at God's word, we first need to understand what it meant to the original listeners, the original readers, as Paul was addressing the church in Corinth, what was going on in their lives, and then what are some principles, what are some truths, things that pass the 2,000-year test and say, this is still true for us today. And I hope in this passage that has been a question for a lot of people, I hope we have that clarity this morning. Our sermon series is called Living in Light of Eternity. And Paul, as he was writing to the Corinthians, he wanted to help address, as I just said, all of these issues, all these struggles that are going on in the church. But then he ends with this amazing teaching about our eternal life. The fact that we will be raised in new life We will be in a perfect body in heaven for all of eternity, just as Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Knowing that, knowing that you are headed to heaven, how should you live today in light of eternity? Are the things that you're doing today going to impact your eternal life? Scripture tells us that Christ has died for our sins and has forgiven our sins. He doesn't hold them against us any longer. But are you reaching others with the gospel? Are you sharing it with them? Are you serving in your local church? Are you loving people well? Things that will impact their eternity even more than yours. Scripture also talks about some 
crowns, some things that we will be rewarded in heaven as we follow Jesus faithfully. And so those are things we can look forward to, but our lives should always be thinking about, I have eternal life. I'm no longer mine. I was bought with the price of Jesus' blood. So how should I live my life? I want to live it in complete obedience and thankfulness, gratefulness to God for what he's done to me, for me. Let's pray, and then let me read the first half of this passage. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these amazing testimonies we heard this morning. Thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit drew each one of these people to a knowledge of their sin and the need for salvation, and that that was through only Jesus Christ alone. Thank you, Lord, for their testimonies. Thank you for their baptism and their obedience in their faith. And Lord, I pray that as we read your word this morning, as we continue to look at how you want us to live in light of eternity, I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears and hearts that are willing to listen and to be softened, to think differently, to act differently as a result of what we've heard in your word today. I ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgrace for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears, his, wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is not an easy passage to talk about this morning. But I want to dig into the meat of it, the heart of it, and that is freedom in worship. First of all, in verse 2, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians because they remember his teachings and they're maintaining, they're following them, they're obeying. The word traditions here is referring to something taught and continued. It's specifically what Paul had taught them and they're continuing to teach it and to hand it down to others. When we think about traditions within our families, you may have a tradition of putting up your Christmas tree right before Thanksgiving or right after Thanksgiving, or you might have a tradition... Sorry. 
of having the family together for meals on Sunday afternoons. Those are traditions that we just like to do. They're not commanded anywhere, but we do them because we're in the habit of doing them. This word tradition for Paul is talking about something that's handed down, but it's been taught. It's been his authority. So this is not a tradition that we could just say, oh, we have a tradition of having a candlelight service on Christmas Eve in our church, or we have a tradition of singing songs before scripture reading and then having a sermon. None of those are specifically mentioned in the Bible, except it says church is about reading the word. It's about worshiping God. So we we have our own way of doing things, but Paul is talking about the things that he taught them and they're following them. 2,000 years ago, there have been cultural changes. There's an ocean that separates us from the church in Corinth. And so before we jump into some of those cultural things that are different, the traditions that are different, we need to recognize that there are biblical principles that remain the same. This passage is not about demeaning or diminishing women in the church. Specifically, almost every one of the verses that's talking about women has a parallel verse talking about men. So it's not beating up on women in any way. And often, as we read that today, we just think, wow, this is so not 2024 or any other time that people were reading it. It's talking about men. It's talking about women. And it's talking about bringing God glory in our worship rather than specific rules that are commanded for worship. We have freedom in worship. In the Jewish synagogue in the first century, women were not considered full members. This is the Jewish synagogue. They were required to sit in the back behind a veil, and they didn't participate at all. They didn't read scripture. They didn't discuss scripture. They didn't teach. They didn't preach. In the Christian church in Corinth and in other places, Jesus welcomed women, and women were recognized as members who were equal in the church and interdependent. That means dependent, independent, but also interconnected. So right from the start, where do we get our teachings about man and woman? It's from God in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible. God tells us that we are all his image bearers, but we have different roles in marriage and in the worship community. Men and women are separate but equal. We have physically different bodies. You all recognize that, that our bodies are physically different? We have different roles in marriage in the church, but spiritually, as we stand before God, we are souls who need to be saved. That is exactly the same. So Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now listen, male and female, he created them. When he's talking about creating man in his own image, he's talking about mankind. But then he says, male and female, our genders, were both created in the image for the glory of God. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia in the New Testament about this. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It appears that in Corinth, and this is why Paul is writing in this letter, maybe to show off some spiritual freedoms. We've, we've been talking about that problem 
over the last couple of chapters. Or maybe it was to stand out from their culture. Some traditional worship attire was being reversed. Men were covering their heads to pray. Or maybe they grew their hair extra long. There are times in Scripture, like if you think about Samson and the Nazarite vow, men had long hair, but it was for a specific purpose. And then they cut it when that vow was completed. But in this case, it's talking about men having their hair unnaturally long. And then it says the women were uncovering their heads or maybe shaving them bald when they publicly prayed and prophesied in the church. So let's talk about the Middle Eastern culture. Even today, women have covered their hair and sometimes their faces as well to signify that they're married and that their beauty is only for their husband. They don't want other men looking at them. They want their hair, their beauty, their glory, the Bible calls it, exhibited only to their husband. And that is true today for a lot of um, Jewish people continuing to have coverings like that. Obviously, the Islamic faith. There are some other churches that we'll talk about in a minute that do this as well. Today in our culture, women wear an engagement ring to show that they've been spoken for and that they have a promise from a man to be married. And then once you're married, you wear a wedding band. And this signifies to everyone, this person is taken. They're off limits. So imagine if you wore your ring for years and you could take it off. Cindy knows that I'm I'm hers forever because mine is not going anywhere. But if you did take it off and it left a tan line from years of wearing it, people would naturally assume that you've been divorced and maybe you're now available. Many people in this culture seeing a woman with her head uncovered would think this person is no longer married. And these were married women prophesying, praying in the church in this case. Jewish men today wear a kippah or a yarmulke. It's a small round cap and you've seen people wearing this They wear it when they pray, and sometimes they wear it all day long. If I wore one, and I have one in my office, I forgot to bring it in. If I wore it, it would be kind of strange, wouldn't it, for a Baptist pastor to come in wearing a yarmulke? Because you'd say, are you Jewish? And I would say, not that I know of. I've been adopted into the family. God's family, it says that we're grafted into the vine, but I'm not Jewish. That's not my custom, and it's certainly not required in Scripture. It was normal for all women in the Greco-Roman world of this day, of Paul's day, for them to wear a head covering of some kind. And in the Corinthian culture, in this church, for women, for married women, to throw off their head coverings in public worship were in a way saying, I'm available or I'm just like the men. And then Paul says, you might as well Cut your hair short or just shave it off completely if you're going to go around uncovered. And that was even more telling for them because the people who had their hair cut extremely short or shaved were typically temple prostitutes. They were women who were performing acts in the pagan temples as part of their worship. And you wouldn't want to identify with them as a believer, as a Christian. There were also feminists in this day. Believe it or not, in the Greco-Roman world, there were feminists who said, I want to be like a man, and they would cut their hair short and dress and act like a man. Now remember, everybody's wearing robes, so the rest of your clothing looks kind of the same. 
Today we have pants and dresses or skirts that sometimes give us an indication of how we're dressed, but those aren't rules. Those are just fashion norms. In their day, everybody's wearing a long gown, a long dress of type, and it would be hard to tell unless you're covered up that this is a woman. So the women in the church kind of defying this tradition was not only harmful for the people in the church, but it's a bad testimony to that local community. And for Paul, the issue really wasn't whether to cover up or not. It was the heart attitudes that were defying culture, that were defying tradition, wanting to make a statement, and wanting the worship and what they're doing to be about them, not about God. Today, there are groups like Plymouth Brethren, the Mennonite, the Amish, Jehovah's Witness, Catholic nuns, Orthodox Jews. A lot of them, women are wearing head coverings all the time or specifically when they're in worship. And some of them believe that it's from this chapter that they're saying, I have to wear a head covering. Paul was really saying men and women are free to worship. The church is different than the temple. Women can pray. Women can share in the service, but it's not done the way you want to do it. It's not drawing attention to you. There's a proper order of doing things. And God created those distinct roles from the beginning for us to follow. One of the commentaries said it's more likely that Paul was saying the woman's hair is her covering, not even just to put on a shawl or an extra veil, but a woman's hair is her head covering, and often it would be tied up or wrapped up when they're in public, and then she would let her hair down, and that would be something she would only do when she's relaxed at home with her family. She should look like a woman, according to Paul. We don't believe or teach that men or women need to cover their heads in church. But if someone came in wearing some kind of a head covering, I hope you wouldn't point at them and stare at them the whole service. Maybe something that they grew up with and was their tradition. But this is what we're understanding from Scripture. There's an order also in worship. And Paul states that the way we worship matters. In verse 3, he says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There's an order in marriage, just as there's an order in the Godhead, the Trinity. This may have been a really deep thought for what seemed like a simple issue. Should the women wear head coverings or not? And Paul says, well, let me take you back to the Trinity. Let me explain to you that the Son, who is equal to the Father, submits to the Father's authority. He obeys the Father. And the Holy Spirit was sent by the Son. All three are equal, but they all have separate, distinct roles. They all have a different thing to do in the Trinity, but there's an authority structure. And the Spirit and the Son willingly submit to the Father. The order is Christ is the head of man. And we believe Christ is the head of our church. The husband is the head of his wife. And God the Father is the head of Christ. Jesus Christ, who is God, Jesus Christ, your Savior, submits to the authority of his Father. Saying that the husband is the head of the wife is not denigrating, it's not demeaning, it doesn't diminish her equal standing before God as an individual, 
But from the beginning, we see that God created this order. Hold on to this thought for a minute about submitting, because I'm going to talk about that a little bit in the last point. In verses 8 to 10, we're reminded again of the creation order. Man was created by God, and woman was created from man. Still by God, but from the man. Genesis 2, 23 to 24. Then man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He'd been seeing all of the animals that God had created and said, ah, something like me, someone who is from my bones and flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother, but God was giving this principle that you leave your home and the two of you, man and woman, become one before God. Notice the concept of woman being created to be a companion, to be the perfect helper for the man who was supposed to be the leader. That came from God. And all this was before sin and the fall. So people who like to look to Genesis and say, oh, this order was messed up. It was the way God created things. The hierarchy in marriage carries over into church life. The man or men are in a position of authority and responsible to God for wife and family. But the two that have become one are equal partners. When we recognize and celebrate those differences, the blessings in our gender, the differences at home and in worship, God is glorified because we're following his design. We're bringing glory to him because this is the design of the Trinity itself. Then sin corrupted what God had planned. Our own desires to be what we want instead of what God planned is sin. Hear that again. Our desires to be whatever we want instead of what God planned is sin. And it should be avoided, not celebrated. Part of the curse on all of humanity when Adam and Eve disobeyed God was that a woman would desire her husband's role, but he would rule over her. Before that, he said the two would become one, and now he's having to give specifics that you're going to rule over your wife. These were not blessings, but they were things that came because of the curse, that a woman would desire to have that leadership role and that a man would be ruling instead. The non-Christian culture in Corinth had a feminist movement just as we have today, but I hope we can all agree that women can be recognized and should be recognized for their talents, for their abilities. They should be paid fairly in the workforce, and we've had all kinds of laws to try and make things more equitable in those areas. But there's something wrong. There's something unbiblical about a woman saying she is no different from a man. Just like it's wrong for a man to say, I can do anything a woman can do. It's not only wrong, it's impossible. The way people are doing this is through surgery and through hormones. They're changing their bodies, not the way God designed them. For a man to say that he wants to bear children and pretend that he's a woman, pretend that he's a mother, it's not possible. It's unnatural. And these are going against God's design. God's design for a man was to be in a position of authority. But with that authority comes the responsibility for his family before God. 
Scripture says that a husband has to answer for the way that he has cared for his wife and cared for his family. And that's also true in the church. God called men to be pastors and deacons, to lead and serve in the church. Both of those roles are serving roles, and that's exactly the way God designed, describes a husband to love, care for, and sacrificially serve his wife. That's how you lead, by serving and loving. And that's how pastors and deacons are supposed to lead in the church. You can find the descriptions, the requirements for church leadership in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus. So I'm not making this up. Other people didn't make it up. It's right from God's word. They're not cultural issues. They're not a matter of tradition like the wearing of a head covering. These are standards for all churches for all time. So Tim Keller, the pastor of, uh, I don't know if it's First Redeemer, but he passed away recently. This is his wife talking about gender roles. How you see God's divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much trust you have in God's character. Gender roles with all of God's gifts to human beings are to be rejoiced in and enjoyed, not endured and resented. The issue for a lot of people is husbands who are bad leaders, wives who are poor wives. It's when things are not going the way God designed that people struggle and fight with these issues. But if you trust God and you believe that he designed something right, then our desire is to follow and obey him and to bring him glory in following through on that. Verse 10 oddly talks about the order of authority being because of the angels. God created angels to be worshipers, to be messengers, and they're supposed to be in complete submission and obedience to God. There's again that order. They have a unique role. They're powerful. They're frightening. Every time someone sees in the Bible, they fall to their knees in awe. But these angels submit to God's authority. They're designed for his service. And the Bible tells us that one of the angels, Lucifer, led a group of others to use their power, to use their positions for their own glory and their own selfish purposes. Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High. And God said, no, you won't. And he kicked him out along with a third of the angels. And they're what we would call demons today. Satan and demons were designed to glorify, to be in authority under God, to submit to him, and they decided they wanted to do it their own way. So Paul is saying, we're going to follow this order in the church because of the angels. They show us that same example, and we're an example to the angels as they're watching and seeing how we listen to God, how we submit to authority just the way he said we should. Hebrews 1 and the whole rest of the book remind us how awesome Jesus is, that he's better, that he's superior, not only to the Old Testament prophets, but he's superior to the angels, and they were even meant to serve him as the Son of God. This order of authority in heaven is mirrored on earth in man and woman. But there's an even greater picture of authority and submission in heaven And I'm going to wrap up with this last point. It's divine love on display. Jesus, the Son of God, who was equal with the Father, 
joyfully submitted his will to the Father's. Within the Trinity, they willingly fulfill different roles as they show God's love to creation. There's no weakness, only humility and strength on display. Haley read Philippians chapter 2 for us. And let me just read that passage about Jesus. Jesus, who was in the form of God, he was God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't grasp, he didn't fight for his equality with the Father and say, why don't you send the Holy Spirit? Why don't you go do it yourself? Can you imagine that conversation in heaven? Jesus loved the Father and loved the Spirit and loved the equality but the roles that were distinct within the Trinity. Jesus humbly submitted and he completed his mission, which he was uniquely qualified for. And Jesus is now the center of attention to the Trinity. It says he's exalted above all others. Every knee on earth and in heaven will bow to Jesus. We picture God the Father sitting on the throne, but it says every knee will bow to the Son. Jesus is going to be exalted and glorified, even above the Father at that point. Let me share another quote from you. This is from Kostenberger and Swain's book, The Trinity and John's Gospel. Just as the Son represented the Father, so Jesus' followers are to rep represent the Son as they are indwelt and enabled by the Spirit. We see a picture of the entire Trinity on display here. Jesus came to earth representing, us, representing to us the Father. This is what he's like. This is his character. This is how much he loves you. And then he died for you. He died for me so that we could be saved, so we could be part of his family. And then he said, if you're going to follow me, you're my representatives to the world. Go tell people what I'm like. Show them what I'm like. Live your life as I lived mine. As the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you and empowers you to change and to live this life that's pleasing to the Father. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all on in perfect, distinct roles with different positions of authority and obedience. None of them lessen their equality or their vital purpose. The Father sent the Son and Jesus, the Son, obeyed the Father and carried out that redemption plan. And then the Son, it says, sent the Spirit to convict, to indwell, to empower believers so that we could share the gospel and make disciples. That's why as we baptize together in unity with, within the church, we're baptizing within the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. While my finite human mind, and hopefully you recognize that yours are finite as well, we can't experience or even begin to understand the Trinity. What I do know is that there's a deep eternal love. There's a fellowship. There's a joy within the Trinity and among the Trinity. And that divine example is exactly what God wants from a man and wife in marriage. Ephesians 5, Paul says, marriage is a picture of our relationship 
with Jesus Christ. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respect her husband. Do you see anything overbearing or demeaning in those words? Love your wife as yourself and respect your husband. And then verse 16 of this chapter, I've kind of flown through. It ends with a warning. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. If any one of you wants to be contentious, that means argumentative or causing conflict, cut it out. That's my version of what Paul's saying. We can't have that in the churches of God, and we won't. We're not going to practice worship that way. We're not going to let you draw attention to yourself and mess up this role of authority within marriage and the Trinity and within the church. And Paul is saying this for his day and for ours today. In this chapter and the next several chapters, Paul's going to continue this theme of loving others more than ourselves. Our gifts and our ministries to others in the church always have to be done in love and in the proper order that God established. Our worship and our ministry should always be focused on bringing God glory and His Son, Jesus Christ. So a couple of takeaway questions before we dismiss. First and foremost, have you accepted God's gift of forgiveness, of salvation, of eternal life? Just as you heard these awesome testimonies this morning, have you come to that place where the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin and you said, yes, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He's the only way that I can have peace with God. Have you trusted Him as your Savior? If you'd like to have a changed life just as you saw on display this morning, come talk to me after the service or talk to one of those folks that just experienced baptism. Maybe you're a Christian, but you've never obeyed the commandment to be baptized. It's a commandment. It says, go into all the world, make disciples, and baptize them. Will you follow Jesus all the way? Even though it might be a little unnerving to stand up front in front of a bunch of people. That's why we let people give their testimonies on video, just to make that part of it a little bit easier, so they don't have to do a lot of public speaking but you heard their personal testimonies and they were willing to stand up here in front of everybody and put on a picture of the gospel. Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, and raising back to life. If you're ready to follow Jesus, there are some brochures out at the Welcome Center. There's thicker booklets on what is baptism and why be baptized, and then there's shorter things that just say, I'd like to be baptized, and you fill out a form and you can talk to me. Another question, do you trust God enough? Do you trust God enough to trust his design for gender roles in marriage and in the church? While, as I said, there are numerous examples of men using their positions badly and of women not being the wives that God's called them to be, there are just as many examples of people around you where they're trying to honor God in their marriage. And if you want to talk to one of those couples in the church, 
they will tell you that there have been ups and downs along the way. If you have this attitude or you just still, still are struggling to really trust God, confess that sin and strive to obey God and His Word. Talk to some other folks and get some encouragement. Or maybe you've made your worship, your ministry about you. Maybe it wasn't so drastic as cutting your hair or changing the way you're dressed, but when you're serving in ministry, it has to be your way, and it's all about you, and you want to make sure everybody sees you doing it. That's not what God calls us to do. He wants all of the glory. He wants all of the praise, and he deserves it. So if that's a struggle, there may be some changes you need to make in your thoughts, in your heart, and in your actions. As we saw last week, we can never use our freedoms in Christ to take away from the glory of God or in harming others that are made in his image. Mark's going to come. We're going to sing a closing song. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us. Thank you for explaining to us the amazing interaction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit within the Trinity. Thank you that you've given us pictures of that in marriage and in our church. And I pray, Lord, that we would trust you, that we would believe that as we honor what you've called us to do, that we would bring you glory in everything we do. Father, I thank you again for Anne-Marie, for Angel, for Cameron, for Seth being baptized this morning. And I just pray as a church family and as their immediate family, that we would be encouraged in their walk in following you and in growing in their faith. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gives us eternal comfort and hope through grace by his Holy Spirit, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, I pray. Amen.